Fannie Mae gets a White House Heisman, and John Stumpf is Banker of the Year. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Thursday. I am Matt Kopenheffer. This is David Hansen. David, I saw a headline that celebrity psychic Sylvia Brown has died at 77 years old. In her honor. Who's Sylvia Brown? Celebrity psychic, come on. Is she the one who used to be on those TV ads or something, or the TV commercials? I don't know who this is. Well, look, in her honor, even though you don't, because you don't know who she is, in her honor, what is your psychic prediction for 2014? 2014. Doesn't have to be stock related, anything. That you will set your personal record in a marathon. Wow. There you go. Okay. Looking out for I, I, I like that prediction. Support. There you go. I like that prediction. All right. Uh, moving on to the the real headlines. We've got Wall Street Journal saying the White House rejects Fannie Freddie recapitalization plans. David, last week, we saw Bruce Berkowitz put up on his Fair Home Funds website a plan to recapitalize Fannie and Freddie, essentially pull out the operating business. Give that to private investors who own the, basically the owners of the preferred stock right now, the Fannie and Freddie preferred stock, and have that be once again, that operating business, be a private business. Take it out of the government's hands. Mm -hmm. Take away the implicit government, he's saying, take away the implicit government guarantee, and rename it. And the government says, no way, Jose. What's, what's, what what is the takeaway here? What is the takeaway here for investors? Well, the takeaway is that the reason the, the, the reason that they said in the article was that this doesn't get rid of the fact that these two would still be the most dominant players in the space. It still creates a duopoly with these two, and new entrants wouldn't be able to come into the market. So they say that's the biggest deal here. But I think the bigger deal is that the government would no longer be getting all of the profits from these two entities, which continues to be the key here, is that the government is making a lot of money off Fannie and Freddie. So you, just, you think that this is government greed? You think that this is plain old government greed? They want the money. Well, it is a little bit of, of greed, but taxpayers were also the ones that bailed out these institutions, sure. so they're somewhat entitled to the profits here. Without the government stepping in, there wouldn't be anything here, potentially. So they took all the risk. So Berkowitz said make- that there'll be something that'll come out of the, uh, the legacy portfolio. Right. It's not surprising that this, to- this plan got turned down. Obviously, Berkowitz and team are, are going to put a plan in front that turns out pretty good for them, right? I mean, why wouldn't they? But it's probably going to be the start of maybe some negotiations, maybe just some talks throwing out some ideas here. So not surprising that this got turned down. Do you think, do you, do you think any of these plans will go anywhere? It's hard to imagine. Does this make you want to buy the preferred shares or the common shares of Fannie or Freddie? Does, does haven't it, before? Doesn't, doesn't really doesn't really no. change it for me. I, I it's hard for me to imagine a, the private group of investors pulling that much weight and making the changes. If anything, I think it's going to have to come from Congress and something like the Corker Warner Bill. I think that's more likely than private investors coming in here and saying this is what we should do. And the Corker uh, Warner Bill is not kind to the shares of Fannie Mae and Freddie. It is not very unkind. So I think that's still more likely, even though. That may not be that likely. All righty. Second headline of the day from American Banker. Wells Fargo's John Stumpf is the 2013 Banker of the Year. That is a great picture of John Stumpf right there, I got to say. 
silver for, hair for, looks good. Yeah, he he looks like he looks like a successful banker in that picture. I'm sorry for the listeners who cannot see that picture. You can go on an American Banker and I guess see it. And the, the article starts off by saying he made 23 million dollars last year, but he still sits in an office. I wonder he looks so good. Yes, but he still sits in an office. There's stuffing coming out of his chair. They said, "Hey, would you ever think about relocating to New York and build a fancy little empire for yourself there?" And he said, "Nah, it's not for us. We like the community banking feel." Do you agree with the choice of Banker of the Year for John Stumpf? I don't think it's a bad choice. When we look back, of course, Stumpf wasn't leading Wells Fargo through the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. That, was, uh, that was his predecessor, and, and I always hate to try to say his name because I usually... Kovacevic. Kovacevic, yeah. I, us- I usually get it wrong, so I was going to... Um, he was not leading Wells Fargo through the, uh, through the financial crisis, but he was there. he's been there. He's been helping to run this to run this bank, the bank that uh, essentially has set itself apart from the other four or from the other three of the largest banks in mm-hmm. the U.S. Um, I don't think it's a bad pick. This follows. La- it was last year that was Steven Steiner at uh, Huntington Bank shares, so. right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I thought that that was a great pick. That's obviously on the small, smaller bank side of things, and he's doing some innovative, neat stuff at Huntington. Um, yeah, I think this is a good pick. Yeah, and I think it's. People always forget that Stumpf wasn't, he's been at Wells Fargo for a long, long time, but he didn't come from San Francisco, Wells Fargo. He was part of Norwest and that merger. So he's really a Norwest guy. And he's talking about the culture of Wells Fargo and trying to keep that culture there. He's really referring more to the culture of Norwest, that kind of Midwestern Minnesota bank. Uh, but if you go back to the time of the merger point. and the size of Wells Fargo, the size of Norwest, you're, you're really talking, when those two come together, mm-hmm. you're really creating a, an entirely a new, new entity, beast, right? Yeah. But it's interesting that he's, he's from this bank that no one ever talks about anymore, but that's really the culture that's still there with Wells Fargo, in addition to the West Coast. How long before Jamie Dimon gets a crack at Banker of the Year? Oh, man. <laughs> I, think I think his run's over. I think that that was a, uh, it's a rhetorical question, right? Third headline of the day, this is Forbes. Meet the assassin market creator who's crowdfunding murder with bitcoins. Just, is, just think about that headline for a second. Assassination market, crowdfunding, murder, bitcoins, all in the same headline. That is, that's a great headline. That is chock full of buzzwords. Uh, th- this, is kind of, this is a distressing story. And pe- our, our viewers and, and listeners can, go ahead, can look up the Forbes article and read that if they want. I, I'm not going to talk about the... the the, the alias to the founder of this site, and I'm not even going to mention the name of the site because it doesn't really make me feel good to talk about this sort of thing, but basically what, what this site was set up to do is to allow people to pledge Bitcoins or donate Bitcoins, whatever you want to call it, to, in, in the, uh, to pay somebody for political assassinations. And currently on this site, the largest bounty is on Ben Bernanke for a little bit more than 124 bitcoins, which as of this morning is worth about $94,000. So you've got people giving money to this site. Anonymously. To, anonymously, mm-hmm. yeah, because, because bitcoin, bitcoin allows that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is exactly the kind of thing for fans of bitcoin, this should make them furious. For, for guys like the, the Winklevoss twins, who we heard speak about bitcoin earlier this year, they should be furious about things like this because this is exactly why uh, people are going to be uh, regulators, law enforcement are going to con- continue to be um, keep that want to keep their distance from Bitcoin because of stuff like this, because of the anonymity. Um, on maybe a little bit funnier side of it, the Wall Street Journal had an article today: virtual currency craze spawns Bitcoin wannabes. 
And in a little passage from there, it said, A cryptocurrency craze has spawned more than 80 entrants, from Peercoin and Namecoin to Worldcoin and Hobo Nickels. In October and November alone, developers launched Gridcoin, Fireflycoin, and Zeuscoin. I mean, b- between these two, David, are we going to look back in a couple years and, and see Bitcoin as that, that it was just a joke and that it was a fad? Or is this really something taking off? I'm not going to give you a straight answer there because I don't know. I don't know. The, the right answer is I know I don't you're a know. fan of Bitcoin. You're, you're a closet fan of Bitcoin. Maybe. I, I like some parts of it, but when you look at the Bitcoins, uh, kind of the benefits of it in terms of being anonymous and being able to securely transfer payments there, the assassination stuff kind of shows the negative side of that. And with all the positives, there's going to be negatives here. And like I've said before on the show, this is going to take a long, long time to be fleshed out from a security perspective, from a legitimacy perspective, which coin, which currency gets kind of the choosing of the masses here, which one will people go with. Bitcoin has the lead now, but we had Morgan Housel on the show, and he said this could be, as The Economist put it, the Napster of digital currencies, how they kind of started the trend, Mm -hmm. but they weren't the long-term winners. As of now, it looks like Bitcoin is going to be the winners. the space of social media. Exactly, but we don't know what five years is going to look like. But for right now, Looks like it's probably going to be Bitcoin. We started the show with you but making we a, psychic, a psychic prediction. If you were to put your psychic's cap back on, five years from now, make a, make a prediction. One way or the other. It'll still be around. Okay. <laughs> Moving on to our focus for today. We spend so much time talking about large cap companies, the, the largest companies, the largest banks, which makes sense because they're in the news the most. They have the, largest, the, the, the broadest shareholder base. But today we're looking at small caps. Mm-hmm. And... We're going to each, we each picked out two small cap financial companies that we think good investment, good company. Um, and our definition of small cap for this purpose was a market cap of less than $3 billion. David, what's the first on your list? First on my list is Interactive Brokers. And the ticker there is IBKR. And this is a $1.2 billion company. So I'm under your $3 billion threshold you there. Are. And this is a low cost brokerage. TD Ameritrade, E-Trade, those are also low-cost brokerages. But this is a little bit different of a model here. And some of our foolish listeners who are kind of just make a couple trades a year, hold the stocks for five-year periods, they probably don't use this interface and this brokerage. This caters much more to someone who wants to trade products, equity products, bond they products. Fun. They want the excitement. Currencies. Uh, so this platform allows you to trade in multiple currencies in different countries across, across multiple exchanges. The commissions are very, very low, $1 a trade here. Um, they've been growing their user base much faster than the TD Ameritrades, than the E-Trades of the world, which grow their... Does that worry you as a foolish investor, by the way? That, that more people are going to this? <laughs> Somewhat, but it, you can also look at it, the trading across exchanges, countries could be a good thing, finding opportunity across the world there. So they have a much different focus there, low-cost provider in the space, growing user base at a, over uh, a double-digit rate, where the other guys are growing at a low single-digit rate. Uh, like I said, small company. The founder of the company is still involved. He's still the, the CEO there. He has a large stake in the company. It seems like it has a good good runway here. So Interactive Brokers, IBKR. Would you rather own Interactive Brokers or Goldman Sachs? Tough comparison there. Um, I, I, personally, I, I personally would probably rather own Goldman Sachs right now, but I certainly wouldn't mind owning both of them. Okay, the theme running through both of my picks is boring. 
They're both they're both pretty boring. They're, they're not they're not exci- they're not particularly exciting. You're not going to win friends and influence people at cocktail parties by bringing these up. The first of the two, for anybody watching the show yesterday, uh, this will sound familiar. Portfolio Recovery Associates. This is one, and and I got to give I got to give credit to a colleague of my, uh, of ours, uh, Jim Gillies, who mm-hmm. who works on our options service. I worked with him in the past on our hidden uh, hidden gems service. He's a big fan of Portfolio Recovery Associates, and he's actually the one that that put this in front of me a long, long time ago. If I were a wiser person, I would have invested in it when Jim first had this in front of me. But what the company does is they buy off, charged off uh, credit portfolios, and they collect on them. Mm-hmm. And they buy, they buy these for pennies on the dollar, and they collect on them for more than pennies mm-hmm. on the dollar. And, and the reason for that is what banks and, and other agencies or lenders want to just get rid of them it's right it's, it's not, not it's, worth the hassle. it's not their business mm-hmm. so so once once it looks like this uh, consumer is not going to pay off their debt they just want to get these uh, get these loans get these portfolios out of there mm-hmm. and it's not their business to go out and make collections although when, when you look at parts of Bank of America and all of the mm-hmm. and all of the mortgage mess you could wonder but anyway Portfolio Recovery Associates, it's, it's just very good at what it does. They know how to price these portfolios. They know how to collect on them. And they've been racking up great returns for a long time as a result. Uh, love the company. I, the valuation isn't astonishingly cheap right now, but I think it's viable. Mm-hmm. All right. Is that it? On to my next one? On to your next one. All right. Going, this one, you got the next one. This is one that, that you put in, in front of me, and I don't own it, but... It's one I'm putting on my radar. So you're saying you, you stole this idea. I stole it from you. And you told me this morning that you were using it just so I knew that I couldn't use it. Yes. Fact. Okay. Okay, uh, continue. So I'm going with green light capital <laughs> reinsurance. So we're straight on that. We talk about green light capital. Everyone thinks, oh, David Einhorn, that's his hedge fund. Well, this is the reinsurance business that he is the chairman of, and this is a $1.1 billion company. Again, under $3 billion there. And usually reinsurance companies, insurance companies, they have a pretty – boring investment style. They buy liquid fixed income products, big treasuries or corporate bonds there. This is not your traditional investment style. Their their investment portfolio is run by a hedge fund that is that Einhorn is a part of, and they invest in equities, long, short hedge fund here. So this is a much different style of an insurance company, maybe a little this bit your dad's riskier. insurance company. It is not. And the company hasn't been around that long, so we don't know a ton about their underwriting. It hasn't been great in terms of their underwriting so far, but I think their incentives are aligned properly. We talk about Markel, how they incent their underwriters for long-term underwriting profitability. Mm-hmm. That's what Greenlight Reinsurance does as well. So it's encouraging. haven't seen great results out of the reinsurance business, but it's encouraging perhaps. Uh, but the investment style is really what you're betting on here. And it's much of it's pretty much a jockey play with Einhorn. And you think, okay, Einhorn, he's got his hedge fund, he's got this reinsurance business. Does he really care? Does he really have skin in the game? And the answer is, he does. He owns about 17% of the company here, which I did some back-of-the-envelope math in terms of his, his net worth. About 15% of his net worth is tied up in uh, Greenlight Reinsurance here. So he has skin in the game. He seems to be involved with the company. He seems to care about it. Um, so if you are a David Einhorn fan, I think this is one to put on your radar. And the ticker there is GLRE. And part of the reason they're able to do that with the long-short strategy is in reinsurance, you typically have a longer period before you have to pay out mm-hmm. on the insurance claims so that you, you can 
potentially move out on the risk spectrum right. in terms of where your investments are. Uh, if you owned neither, would you rather own Greenlight or Markel? Still going with Markel. It has okay. a track record there. If you own neither, would you rather own Greenlight or Allstate? I think I would go with Greenlight. There you go. All right. My, my second one, and I'll, and I'll keep this short because, again, this is kind of boring. It's very simple. Bank of the Ozarks. This is a, this is a smaller bank. Uh, just really good, solid banking. I mean, we're talking about growth in, uh, growth in deposits over the years. Uh, when you think about what really can differentiate a bank, it's having a really strong deposit franchi- franchise mm-hmm. because uh, what ends up happening is when we're not in an ultra-low interest rate environment like we are today, uh, the deposits typically carry or almost always carry a uh, funding cost that's way, 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 way lower than anything else. And in some cases, you're not even paying anything on the deposits, so you're making really nice spreads between what you can lend out on and, uh, and what you're paying on those deposits, what you're paying on your funding costs. On the other side of the spectrum, when you lend the money out, you want to make sure that you get it back, which is a problem that many of the biggest mm-hmm. banks had uh, during and following the financial crisis. Bank of the Ozarks has been very, very good about that. Of course, they saw a little bit of a spike during the, during the financial crisis, but nowhere near kind of the average across banks. And right now, uh, about 0.3% of total loans are non-performing. Go ahead and check that up against basically any other bank out there. Uh, bank of the Ozarks out, way outperforms just about every bank on that measure. And when you put that together, growing deposits, growing that low-cost funding base, uh, making loans that are consistently getting paid back, you end up with tremendous returns. Bank of the Ozarks has about a 15% return on equity right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, uh, that blows most banks out of the water as well problem is that it's not a secret how good this bank is. So the current uh, price to tangible book value is 3.2 times. Mm-hmm. That's pretty expensive, and I, I don't know whether that's really viable, but it's maybe worth sort of a, an entry position or a, mm-hmm. or, or a kind of a tracking position in it, and then buy, buy more if uh, the market does something stupid. Um, you could also maybe just keep it on your watch list and, and see whether you can get a better price. And the ticker? OZ. RK. There you go. And portfolio recovery. I don't think I mentioned that one. PRAA. There you go. Emails. We have an email address for the show. It's WTMI at fool.com. We love to hear from readers. We love to hear questions. We love to hear comments. Just don't insult my bow tie. (laughs) It's WTMI at fool.com. Our question for today, this is from Nate. He says, I can't help but notice you guys talk a lot about JP Morgan. It's got me thinking, how does JP Morgan stack up against the S&P 500 as tracked by Vanguard's mutual fund? VFINX since 1987. Now, past performance isn't indicative of future performance, but over that long period, I think it's a really good measuring stick. Anyways, as you can see below, JP Morgan has slightly underperformed the VFINX over that time period. So I have to ask you guys, can you please stop spending so much time on a stock that hasn't even outperformed the broad market? Wah, wah. Uh, Nate's numbers show that on an annualized basis, the Vanguard S&P 500 index has returned 9.25% per year, and J.P. Morgan, 9.248%, so literally just a hair below the broader market. David, are we spending too much time with J.P. Morgan? Maybe a little bit, but we, we'd like to keep our listeners in the know with what's going on if they own J.P. Morgan stock. We like to keep them updated what's going on with the lawsuits, what's going on with Diamond. So we talk about it that from... from 
because of that, because it's in the news and we want people to be informed with what's going on. But you, he mentions 1987 and, like he said, past performance, not indicative of future results mm-hmm. here. And we're looking at, we're often talking about the stock today. What does the stock look like today? What are the returns potential for the next five to 10 years? So I see what he's saying, but it's not that quite a, of a clear of a comparison to say, oh, just because it's been flat with the market, we shouldn't talk about it. I, I, yep, you're right on, on the news perspective. We, we want to keep people up to date on what's going on in the news. And obviously, the J.P. Morgan stories are pretty big stories. Uh, J.P. Morgan stock has moved up just slightly since from when Nate ran his numbers. And actually, J.P. Morgan stock now is outperforming the, the S&P 500 by, by a slight, slight margin. But it's, it's tricky when you, when you look at a, a time period like that because the starting point that you choose can be relatively arbitrary. And in this, in, in this case, I think he chose 1987 because that's as far back as the VFINX data goes. If you chose the beginning of January 1996, I chose that, I promise, completely at random. If you chose January 1996, the annualized performance of the S&P 500 as tracked by the VFINX, 7.9% versus 9.2% for mm-hmm. J.P. Morgan. So it solidly outperformed the broader market over that period. But I think even more importantly here, here's, here's a few points. The business is much different than it was back then. In 2004, J.P. Morgan merged with Bank One. That was a gigantic merger, and it, it, it changed the business in very, very big ways. Mm-hmm. You obviously have different leadership here. Uh, Jamie Dimon came over with Bank One, and he's the CEO of the company now. So comparing between even the early 2000s and now, you've got big, big differences in what J.P. Morgan is as yep. a business. Finally, if, if you think about valuation, if we look at the valuation multiples on J.P. Morgan stock today, you have to go back to the early 1990s to find a time when J.P. Morgan stock was trading at multiples that are similar to today's. So essentially what you're doing is you're comparing price performance over a period that ends with, if not historically low uh, pr- uh, price multiples, mm-hmm. then just extremely low price multiples given J.P. Morgan's history. Um, and, and again, we're forward-looking, so we're, we're looking at what J.P. Morgan stock can do. And when you take those low multiples, when you take the change in the business, I think there's a lot to like going forward. Obviously, Nate doesn't agree. <laughs> we'll try not to focus so much on J.P. Morgan, but it is one of my favorite investments right now. All right. I'm sticking with it. Game for the day. We got a little fool in the blank here. It looks like we're, I don't know how we're running low on time already, but let's, let's nail this one. All right. The first fool in the blank is if all banks were priced at one times tangible book value, blank would be my first buy. Fool in the blank. I've got, I've got three. It's so hard it's to choose. It's so hard to choose. I've got Bank of the Ozarks, which I just uh, mentioned just earlier, U.S. Bank Corp, Bank of Hawaii. Those would be right up there at the top of my list. If you're going to make me choose one, I'm going to go U.S. Bancorp. we got to stop spending so much time together. This is getting a little ridiculous. Did, I, I had two as well. I had U.S. Bancorp as my number one just because the returns are virtually unmatched when you look at on returns on equity, return on assets over the last decades. But my sleeper was Bank of Hawaii, <laughs> which is it's, it's been, so been incredible the last several years here scary from a returns perspective. Valuation's a little rich, but if it was at one time, so I'd be all over both of them. All right, let's go on to the second one, the second fool in the blank. Blank is one Berkshire-held stock I'm staying away from. David, fool in that blank. This is a stock that Berkshire holds. This is a stock that you hold, and I'm not oh. holding it. Walmart. 
Wah, wah. Not a, not a huge fan of Walmart for someone in my position. When we talk about Walmart's not a huge fan of you, David. <laughs> we talk about if a stock is a buy today. Something that our colleague Morgan Housel is very passionate about is for who? What what type of investor is that a stock or a buy, a buy or a sell for? For me, as a young investor with a lot of years in front of me, I don't get too excited about holding a Walmart trading at 15 times earnings not giving me a huge dividend here. I think it's a stable stock for someone that's older in retirement. That's great. But for me... <laughs> what are you saying about yeah, me? Maybe you. But for me, I'm not interested in Walmart. Well, I'm going to return the favor. My stock that, I, that I'm not taking out of the Berkshire portfolio, American Express. Okay. Hey, it's, it's a fine business. It's... It, Whatever. I, I like American Express at a, at a great valuation. I would own American Express. I don't think it's a viable valuation today. And frankly, combine that with the fact that uh, there are other credit card-based companies that I'd rather own. American Express, not for me, even though Buffett loves it. And I love it. I own it. Yeah, I don't care. So there you go. I don't, I don't All right, <laughs> finishing off. Finishing off in the Twitter sphere. We have just one tweet today. Our Twitter handle is at TMF Financials. Give us some love on Twitter, and we'll answer questions and put your tweet up here. This one is from Morgan Housel. Oh, yeah, you, you get to read the tweet. All right, Go he says, it. Morgan says, the only real bubbles over the last century were stocks in 1929, treasuries in the 1960s, stocks in 99, housing in 06, each faced decade-plus recoveries. Matt, false. My, my question is, okay, even if you disagree with Morgan here, this is, this is my theory Everyone is so hyper-obsessed with trying to predict the next bubble right now because we are all so caught off guard by the housing bubble. I mean, everyone was. Regardless of what you were, think you were saying in 2006, almost everyone was caught off guard by the last bubble. Is everyone just completely obsessed with trying to predict the next one so they can say, oh, I predicted? Is that what's yeah. going on here? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a framing. It's a backward-looking kind of thing. Everybody is looking at 2008, 2009 saying, I'm not going to get fooled like that again. We channel the, the who a little bit there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so they're trying to predict the next bubble. It's not going to work out. And as long as everybody is focused on that, there's not going to be a bubble. The bubble's going to happen when everybody's beyond that. They're saying, oh, bu- bubbles don't happen. The market can go up forever. The housing market can go up forever. Bitcoin can go up forever. That's when bubbles happen. And Morgan's also wrong. There's a bubble in cupcakes. I hope that pops soon. Don't like well, he had a, He had an earlier tweet, too, that we didn't include that he says, just because something's overpriced a little bit, or, or maybe dramatically, doesn't mean it's a bubble. Cupcakes, a of, still a bubble. Okay. I, I can get on board with that. A lot of cupcake shops out there. All right. Uh, again, our, our Twitter address, at TMF Financials, our email address, WTMI at fool.com. And since we haven't mentioned it in a while, we do have a free report available for listeners and viewers. All they have to do, email Warren. At fool.com, you'll get a great report about Warren Buffett's greatest wisdom. That's all we got, David. Mm -hmm. Thanks for watching, folks. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This is David Hansen. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.